And today we are going to continue uh, in our series through uh, 1 Corinthians. We haven't gone very far. We only got one verse done last week, but uh, we'll get a few more uh, done this week. And so, Father, as we uh, tackle this text today, we pray for your grace over our time. Pray your Holy Spirit would speak into our hearts. Amen. Uh, we're going to talk today about being thankful despite the mess. Uh, because one thing we know is that life can be messy. Uh, there are messy people around us. There are messy groups. And sometimes the person who today is sitting in your chair can get pretty messy uh, as well. Um, but the Bible says that we are to be thankful in all circumstances. And yet we live in this world where there's lots of mess. And we've got to hang around messy people. Uh, yet how do we put those two together? Can we be thankful in the mess? That's, what, that's what's going to come out of our text today, uh, but we've got to work through a few things to get there. Last week we looked at this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Uh, that Paul knew, as we talked about last week, that he was called to be an apostle. If you said, Paul, what is your destiny? What are you called to do? He says, I'm called to be an apostle. And God has placed a calling on your life as well. And we talked about this last week, that all of us should be living into our calling, living into our destiny. And we talked about how that's different from a hobby, different from a job, uh, that a hobby tends to be something that you really enjoy, but doesn't help a lot of people, because a calling will always help people. A hobby is something you really enjoy, but doesn't help a lot of people. A job is something that you might be really good at, uh, but you might not necessarily be really passionate about. A calling is something that you are good at and you are passionate about and helps people. And we all should be at a place where if, if I asked you, hey, what is your calling in this season? You'd be, you'd be saying, Jesse, this is my calling. Right now in the season, this is what I'm trying to focus in on. And for a lot of us, uh, you need to work at a job in order to fund your calling. And not everybody can, can live their calling and get paid for their calling, though some, some do. Uh, but, but do you know what your calling is, and is, are, you, are you living into that? that? That's what we worked through last week. And so Paul is writing a letter here to the church in Corinth. Uh, he's writing along with his brother, uh, that's a brother in Christ, Sothenes, who might be a synagogue leader who, in, in the book of Acts, uh, came to know Jesus. That, we don't know for sure who this guy is. But Paul is writing to the church of God in Corinth. And that's why the book is called the book of Corinthians. And there's two books. The second book of Corinthians. Uh, Cor Corinth is actually still there. If you go to Greece, uh, there's still a city uh, called Corinth in Greece. It is near the, near the water. And if you go to Corinth, there's about 30,000 people in Corinth today. But there are actually still ruins of ancient Corinth that you, if you go to Greece, you can stop by and check them out. And there's just an aerial view uh, Google Earth view of all, all the different ruins. And so uh, the ancient city of Corinth, uh, it was a very uh, spiritual city. In fact, Corinth is very much like, like here. I mean, we're, we're very spiritual here. Lots of different kinds of beliefs in this community and, and different views on God. And we're very spiritual in this place. And, and the same with Corinth. Lots of different temples. Here's a picture of uh, some ruins of the, the Temple of Octavia and the, the Temple of Apollo, some ruins, and lots and lots of more temples. But one of the most interesting temples, which actually the idea of it comes up in this book, is the Temple of Aphrodite. And if you look through the Temple of Apollo up on that cliff, 
uh, that's where the temple of Aphrodite was. And, and the temple of Aphrodite, or the goddess of Aphrodite, is, is the god of sex and sexuality and procreation and all that stuff, dealing with that kind of business. Uh, but in order to worship the, the, the goddess Aphrodite, one of the ways you do it is you hike up there and you would have sex with one of the, the temple prostitutes. And so uh, rich people sometimes would donate prostitutes to pay homage to this to this goddess, and they would donate prostitutes to serve at the temple. Uh, one uh, Greek geographer said this, the temple of Aphrodite was once so rich that it had acquired more than a thousand prostitutes donated by both men and women to serve uh, to the service of the goddess. And because of them, the city used to be jam-packed and became wealthy. It was like the ancient idea of what we call today like sexual tourism. Uh, where well, people go overseas to, you know, uh, do nasty things. Uh, the ship captains would spend fortunes there. And so the proverb says, the voyage to Corinth isn't just for any man. Uh, scholars doubt whether there's actually a thousand prostitutes there. I mean, the temple wasn't that big, but, uh, but there seems to be there was a lot. And so this was a very uh, kind of a sexual city. Uh, people who lived in the city were known uh, kind of negatively. Uh, the Roman term Corinthiazome, which means to live like a Corinthian, meant to be sexually out of control. And so you'd use that as a derogatory term in the Roman Empire. You'd say, you know, you're a you're Corinthiazome. It means that you're sexually out of control. If a Corinthian was shown upon a stage in a Greek play, he was shown as drunk. And so the city would be maybe, I don't know, like our modern-day Las Vegas or Amsterdam. It would be one of those kinds of cities. It was kind of the crazy city, the party city, the, the city where all kinds of sexual stuff would happen all over the place. And in the midst of this crazy city was a crazy little church uh, in Corinth. And that's who Paul writes this letter to. And because this church is in this kind of Las Vegas location, it's struggling. It's struggling with how much do I be in the world? How much am I out of the world? Uh, they're engaged in things maybe they shouldn't be. And again, this is, we struggle with this stuff. I mean, Jesus said, uh, we're not to be taken out of the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, how much are we in? How much are we out? Uh, they were struggling with this. And so we're going to learn a lot about that as we go throughout this, this book. So he's writing to this church, to the church of God in Corinth. And he says to these people, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And the word sanctified is really the idea that when you give your heart to Jesus, when you open up your life to Jesus, God moves in, and because God moves in, he changes you. One of the perfect, de perfect definitions of the word sanctified or sanctification is this. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. That God moves into your life. You actually become a temple, the Bible says. And God moves into your life. And I hope God is living in you. In fact, Paul later would ask the Corinthians, don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? And when God moves in, we're changed. This is why often when, when people become a Christian, they're like, wow, I've I just changed. This, this has changed, and this has changed, and this has changed, because God has moved in. I mean, we know in a house, like if you have like a new roommate, or someone moves into your house, it like changes everything in the home, Right? How much more when God moves into your life? Uh, the living God who created the universe lives in you. 
Because God is in you, and he loves you too much to leave you in your mess. He starts to change you. Uh, sometimes he has to struggle with us because we don't want to change, but other places we, we're gladly wanting to change. And, and, and we just allow him to work. This is what it means to be sanctified. And Paul says to them, you are sanctified. God is at work in you, and he's in work in us. Uh, we are a construction project. He, where he's doing renovations uh, in our lives. And then he says this, and called to be his holy people. And literally, he says in the Greek, it's called to be saints. And some translations will actually have that. Called to be saints. Not, not called in the future, but called right now as they are saints. Just as Paul said, I'm called to be an apostle, and he was an apostle. We are called to be saints, and we are saints. And all through the scripture, the Bible describes followers of Jesus as saints. Now the NIV and other translations will, will put in the phrase, called these holy people instead of the saints, because sometimes that word is confusing. Because uh, we have all these kind of idea in our society about what, what a saint really is. I mean, you say, if you look on Wikipedia, it says this. A saint is a person who is recognized as having an exceptional degree of holiness or likeness to God. And, and we might immediately say, well, you know, that's not me, so I must not be a saint. And then it gets more confusing because there's long lists out there of how you become a saint. Uh, for instance, uh, Father James Martin says, here's how you become a saint. Uh, first of all, there's 10 steps, by the way. Uh, first of all, you need to become a Roman Catholic. Uh, secondly, you've got to die, which that means all of us are out right now anyways. Uh, there's got to be a devotion that grows up around your memory. And your life needs to be investigated. And then the local bishops send your case to the Vatican. You must perform a miracle after you die. Uh, the Vatican investigates the miracle. Then the Vatican declares you're blessed. And then you've got to perform another miracle. And then finally, you become a saint. I mean, we're all out. I mean, right away, step two, we're just, we're just, we're just done, right? Or maybe step one, we're out. Uh, but this is not how the Bible uses the word saint. Uh, the Bible says that if you are a Christian... If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. That that's your identity. That's who you actually are. And it's very common in the New Testament. 67 times the New Testament identifies Jesus' followers as saints. You know, only two or three times it actually identifies us as sinners. Now we are sinners. I mean, the Bible says, if you ever say you were without sin, you call God a liar. I mean, we were sinners, but we have a new identity in Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. Uh, sin no longer has power over us. We have new hearts and, and new lives. God moves in and he declares us saints. Amen. And I hope that you see yourself as a saint. You say, I'm a saint. And this is not because I'm so good. It's not because Jesse is so good. It's because Jesus is so good. Uh, Jesus is so good that he declares us saints. It's not because I'm amazing, uh, but you are a saint. This, this is who you are in Jesus and how the New Testament describes you. In fact, the uh, New Testament has lots of names for you. You're, you're a chosen people. You're uh, part of the royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession. You're a dearly loved child. You're redeemed and forgiven, and you're empowered by the Spirit. And we can go on and on and on and on, but, but you are new in Jesus. The old is gone, new has come, and we did a whole series in the spring about this and how we are to live into the new self. That we don't try to pastor our old self. We don't try to coddle our old self and make our old self feel comfortable. It is dead. We live into our new self. We live into who we are in Jesus. 
And immediately Paul begins and says, he reminds them of who they are. You're sanctified. God is living in you. And you're a saint. To the saints of Corinth and to the saints at the junction, he writes. And then he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Those are awesome words. And I don't know about you, when I hear those words, it's like, no, nah, I want some. It's like, it's like cheesecake and homemade apple pie. You just, you want some, right? Or, you know, burgers and fries or something like that. Or uh, Nina's pierogies. You, you, just, you just want to eat them, right? Uh, they're awesome. Uh, grace and peace. Uh, these are they're beautiful words. And the good news is, if you're here in need of grace and peace, uh, you can have it. Because it's not lost. They're not lost. We don't have to, you know, search through the jungle or climb a temple or, you know, uh, fast for a million years in order to receive it. It tells us where we find it from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And more specifically, it tells us how to get it. It says this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And why can you do that? Because you're a saint. Because you've been cleansed of Christ, because you've been made new. We can approach God's throne with confidence, not because of my pride and not because I'm so good. It's all because Jesus is so good. When you understand what Jesus has done for you, you can approach God's throne with confidence. If, if your whole idea of approaching God's throne is always, I'm so unworthy and I shouldn't approach my throne because I really messed up this week, you're actually, in a sense, uh, kind of spitting in the face of Jesus and what he's done for you. Jesus worked for you, has cleansed you, and sanctified you, and made you new, and that you are dead to sin. The old is gone, the new has come. And he says, because of what I've done for you, you can boldly go into the throne room of grace. He's given you the key, and if you say, well, I can't really hold the key, and you know, I'm not, whatever. Jesus has done this for you. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. When you focus on Jesus, and you realize what he's done for you, you come boldly into the throne room of grace, because he has, he has opened up the curtain for us to do that. And so he says, let us come confidently so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's, a, that's where we find it, at the throne room. We go to the throne and we receive mercy and we receive grace. And notice it says here, in our time of need. Meaning this is in a time when we don't have everything together. When you don't have everything together, when you need grace, when you need mercy, meaning we probably messed up, he says, Boldly come into the throne room of grace and receive it. Because Jesus has uh, paved the way for us. And so we can go into his throne. And now for the crazy part. Here is, this to me is one of the craziest things in this whole book. Paul says this. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will, always, uh, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul begins this letter, again, by reminding them you're sanctified. God is at work in you. You are saints. You can find grace and mercy. And then he says, I always thank God for you. And he gives them this amazing blessing. 
You might say, well, what's so crazy about that? It's crazy because this was the most messy church you could ever imagine. <laughs> I mean, if you think this church is messy, I mean, this, this is like the most, you could just try to conjure up the most messy church in your mind and this church would be it. And yet he says to them, I think, I always thank God for you. I mean, th this is, a, to me, this is one of the biggest challenges in, in this idea of being thankful towards people who are messy and churches that are messy and groups that are messy. I mean, let me just give you a, a quick overview of the mess of this church. And just see, would you ever go to this church? I don't think so. Okay, Here, here's some of the issues that Paul is going to address in this church. And he doesn't ignore the negative stuff. He's going to deal with it, but he is able to find things to be thankful for. It's incredible. Uh, divisions in this church. There's boasting and human wisdom about God's wisdom. There's quarreling and jealousy. Paul calls them worldly. Uh, they're boasting about human leaders. They're going beyond what was written. There's arrogance in the church. Uh, there's a man having an affair with his stepmom. Uh, they're suing one another. Some are engaged in prostitution at the temple up on the hill, right? Uh, they're abusing their freedom in Jesus. They're disrespecting leadership, like they're disrespecting the Apostle Paul. Uh, they're showing up at church partially naked. And they're eating all the potluck food before others could eat. I mean, imagine if a few of us went and ate all the Smokies before you could get there, right? I mean, that's what was going on. And then we drank, not dad's root beer, but we had the real stuff here, and we got drunk at the church potluck. That's what was going on there. I mean, it was so bad. It was so bad. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Your meetings do more harm than good. I mean, imagine if, like, some head church leader came in here and spent a couple services with us and said in the end, man, you should just shut her down because your services do more harm than good. I mean, how bad does it have to be for Paul to say that? But he says this, your meetings do more harm than good. And that's not it. Uh, some thought their spiritual gift was far more important than other gifts. There's an excess of pride and a lack of love around gifts of tongues and prophecy. Some even doubted the resurrection. I mean, this is one of those churches that will be like million Facebook pages out there about heresy and never go there. And this is the worst church in the whole world. It would, you know, it just, in today's world, everybody would go to a different church. But, and then there was only one church in Corinth, so everybody went there. Uh, but it was super, 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 super incredibly messy. Now again, Paul doesn't ignore it. He's going to deal with it. Because as a loving father, he wants to help these people grow. But he says this. I always thank my God for you. Do you know messy people? Do you know some messy churches? Do you know messy groups? I always thank my God for you. You are sanctified. You, you are saints, he says. He gives them this blessing. You have enriched in every way. You don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for Lord Jesus. He will also keep you firm to the end. I mean, he blesses them and he, and he, and he thanks them. Now, we don't do that. Usually when it comes to messy people and messy groups, we just want to just kind of pour out all kind of negativity on them. And we want to correct all our mistakes, but we don't want to see any goodness in them. We don't want to see any gold in them hills. We just want to, you know, just shut them down kind of thing. This is a real challenge. To me, as I've been looking at this book, man, this is a challenge. Because I don't think I would say that to a church like this. I mean, like... He's, he's just thanking him. Now, uh, part of this comes out because Paul realizes the importance of thanksgiving. 
You know, sometimes we wonder, God, what's your will for my life? Well, we can start here because it's pretty clear. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul's looking at the circumstance. <laughs> it is messy. I've got to write a book 16 chapters long to deal with all the issues. But I'm thankful. I always thank God for you. Uh, he's just thankful. And, and, and this has got to be us. Because I tell you, there's lots of messy people. And you know, we know how our minds work. Because uh, you realize in, in psychology, they tell us that whenever something is messy or something that we don't tend to like, we, we always just want to distance ourselves from it. We always want to just be completely black and white. It's all bad. It's all negative. We don't want to look for any good. And we just naturally do that. We will naturally distance ourselves from anything that doesn't help our identity because often wrongly we try to get too much of our identity from uh, other people and the groups we associate with rather than Jesus. And because we try to get our identity from other people and other groups, if that group makes us look bad, we don't want to be associated with it, so it's all bad and I'm not going to be thankful for it. And they've done lots of studies like this. Like on university campus, campuses, they, they find that if their sports team wins, 99% of the time people will say, our team won. Because it helps my identity. It makes me feel good. Our team won. I'm going to bring it close because it's not so messy right now. They won. But when they lose, 99% of the time, this is the phrase. They lost. <laughs> the Canucks lost. They don't say our team lost because we just naturally want to distance ourselves. We want to push it away. We want to say it's all bad uh, because it's kind of hurt. And we're still playing sort of the, the adolescence identity wars of our teams. And we need to learn to get our identity from Jesus. Because when you get your identity from Jesus, it allows you to look at a really messy thing like Paul and realize there's some stuff that needs to be fixed here. But I always thank God for you. Amen. Uh, I, I, I look at it this way. We were called to be gold miners. You know, to gold mine, you've got to go through a lot of junk. You've got to go through a lot of dirt. But there's gold in them mills, right? Uh. And you can find it. And, and we got to learn to be able to look at messy people, because maybe you're going to have some over at your house this afternoon or tomorrow or next day. Uh, you got to be able to look and, and look through the mess. You don't ignore the mess, but you look through it and say, you know, I can thank God for that. You know, that group over there, that church is crazy, but, but I can thank God for that. To be a gold miner, because the Bible says part of God's will for you is be, to be able to give thanks in all circumstances. Part of the reason Paul was able to do this is because Paul saw others through the lens of thanksgiving. He's just always, that's horrible, I don't agree with that, that's bad, but man, is there something I can be thankful for? Because I know this is God's will for me, is to be thankful in all circumstances. This is a messy circumstance, how can I be thankful? Here's another crazy example from Paul. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And so he is talking about people who are preaching uh, out, of, out of selfish ambition. Uh, they're not preaching for Jesus. They're, they're preaching for Look how great I am. They're, they're not trying to win people to Jesus. They're, they're trying to win people their, to their church or whatever it might be. Selfish ambition. They're also, you know, against Paul. How would you respond to this? Messy. You know, they're just, you totally distance ourselves. But look what Paul says to them. But what does it matter? The important thing 
is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, he doesn't agree with their, their, uh, their stance, their preaching out of selfish ambition. He calls it as it is, but he still is able to find gold in the mess. I can at least be thankful that they're preaching Christ. Now, are you able to find gold in the mess? Are you able to be a gold miner in that messy group or that messy situation? Say, you know, I don't agree with that, and I wish that was better, and maybe i got to talk to them about this, but I am thankful for that, and I'm thankful for this uh, in their life. Because we know God's will, again, is for us to be thankful in all circumstances. The reality is it's really hard to love and serve people when you're not thankful for them. <clears throat> it is really hard to love and serve people if you're not thankful for them. It's one of the reasons why we need to learn how to gold mine, because it helps us love people. And we all have people that's really hard to love, and, and we don't maybe even want to love. But if you're able to gold mine and find something you're thankful for, it, it just helps, because we are called to love deeply. Galatians 5 says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, there's lots of other things that count, but he's saying the most important thing is that your Christianity expresses itself in love. The most important thing is God in you because God is love. You, you want to release that God in terms of love. And that's just not loving people who love you because Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what good is that? Even pagans do that. This is loving hard people. This is loving messy people. To be able to find that goal. Uh, again, John 13 says that, that the world will know that we're Christians. Again, by our love. And if you're not thankful for somebody or thankful for a group, if you're not able to see any gold in them or that group, it is very hard to actually love that person. And again, you'll just want to distance yourself from them. And you won't be able to love and serve them. Uh, I think one of the reasons Paul was able to be thankful is because he saw them through the eyes of Jesus. Do you realize in verses 2 through 9, he says to the church of God in Corinth, and he starts talking to them, he mentions Jesus by name eight times. He's not seen these people through his own eyes. He's seen them through Jesus' eyes. And so it's important when we look at people is to try to see people through the eyes of Jesus. And again, he sees them through the eyes of Jesus in the future. In 1 Corinthians chapter, at the end, he says, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He has hope for them because Jesus is in them. He's not trying to control them. He's not trying to manipulate the situation. He's actually, I know God is in you. You're sanctified. And I have faith that God is going to begin working that mess out of your lives. We've got to have that kind of faith for people. I mean, sometimes we just try to manipulate and control people. We become God trying to force them into our mold rather than just pulling back at times and praying for them and trusting that God is going to do what he is going to do. Uh, um, in, in, in their lives. He saw them through the eyes of Jesus. And so must we. To really work on seeing people through the eyes of Jesus. And I just close with, with this. Here's some questions you can ask uh, about people. Uh, Jesus, what do you love about this person? Because we know God loves everybody. And uh, we know every single person, even people who are not Christians, are created in the image of God, and are still in the image of God, because James 3 says that, even for people who are not Christians. And they're in the image of God. There's something that bears the image of God. Jesus, what do you love about this person? 
I mean, maybe you know a messy person or a messy group. You guys have a Jesus. What do you love about that group? I mean, to ask this question and just listen, because he's, he's going to be the first word or phrase. He pops, and it gives you something to be thankful for. And when you have something to be thankful for, it makes it a lot easier to actually love that person. Or, uh, Jesus, what are you thankful for in this person's life? Uh, how about this one? How does this person reflect your image? Or, Jesus, what are you wanting to do in this person? Because sometimes when you see what God is wanting to do, instead of fighting against that person, you can actually work with God to actually grow the person. Jesus, what are you wanting to do in that person? And so let's just take a moment. Um, maybe you just in your mind you want to picture that messy person you've got to deal with. Maybe it's a family member. Uh, maybe it's, it's uh, just a messy person at church. Uh, maybe it's me. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but just take a moment to ask Jesus, Jesus, what are you thankful for in this person's life? Jesus, what are you thankful for in this person's life? Father, I pray you would help us to follow in the footsteps of Paul. A difficult example to follow in such messiness to be able to say, I always thank God for you. God, would you teach us to see gold in the mess around us? God, would you teach us to see gold in, in those messy people and to be thankful for those good things that you are doing? God, would you teach us to be thankful for those messy groups that, that we got to be in contact with. And God, may we be thankful for the gold even in this messy church. Uh, God, we thank you as well that you, that you sing over us, that you rejoice over us, that you've moved into our lives, that you've called us saints. God, we, we don't deserve it, but we know you are good and you are loved and you are amazing, so we give you all the glory and all the praise. And we honor you, God, the most amazing Father, on this Father's Day. We honor you as the God of this universe, the holy, true, righteous one in every way. And God, would you continue to move in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.